Hi everyone and welcome to our podcast series. My name is Jan Alford and I'll be your host today. Today's podcast is focusing on the crucial task of supporting our clients' emotional well-being. The learning objectives for today are, one, to discuss issues that we face more often as diabetes educators and health professionals surrounding psychological health and emotional well-being of our clients. Secondly, to identify the emotional themes patients face living with a new diagnosis or ongoing emotional needs related to living with a chronic health condition, in this case, diabetes. And thirdly, to learn from clinical expertise what sort of triggers or red flags we should be aware of and who can we refer to for further assistance. Our speaker today is Dr Linda Beeney. Linda completed her PhD in medicine at the University of Sydney and further developed her skills in diabetes psychology at the Joslin Diabetes Centre during her postdoctoral clinical fellowship at Harvard Medical School. Dr Beeney has developed a thriving private practice in Sydney as a diabetes psychologist, working with people with type 1 and type 2 diabetes, their families and health professionals. Linda is also the principal investigator of the Remind Research in Media in Diabetes program, with current research focused on diabetes language and communication, analysis of diabetes media messages and framing of complications, risk communication. Well, hello, Linda, and it's lovely to catch up with you again after all this time. So how are you today? Yeah, good morning, Jan, and thanks so much. I'm really well. Very glad for the rain, and I'm happy to see the sun shining this morning in Sydney. (laughs) (laughs) Well, unfortunately, it's not raining elsewhere, but never mind. Okay, look, I've got a... I've got a number of questions that uh, I wanted to to go through with you. So we might start Mm -hmm. with the first one. And Mm. a number of our members have brought to our attention an increased need for more education and tools to use when working with their clients living with diabetes. And we get a sense that the number of clients with psychological and emotional health needs are increasing. Some may feel ill-equipped to be able to help their clients manage their emotional struggles particularly related to living with a chronic health condition. So uh, with that last statement in mind, how would you respond to that uh, sentiment? Yeah, it's a great question, Jan. Look, I I suspect the percentage of people with uh, high diabetes-specific distress, as well as general psychological issues like depression and anxiety, probably hasn't increased a lot over time. Uh, I think we're probably better aware of those things. Um, So to give you some evidence about that, you know, for example, the international uh, DAWN studies uh, show a relatively constant percentage of people with diabetes across the world who report significant diabetes distress at a particular time point. Uh, I think it's the figures sit around 40 to 45% of people across various countries of type 1 and type 2. So I, I'm not sure that the data suggests that the uh, numbers of people are increasing, but the high, that high, relatively high percentage is still, of course, uh, of concern to us. In 2019, I think we're simply more aware of what has been recognised as a problem for about the last you know, 40 years or so. And I think that's a great thing. Um, it's also consistent with, say, the greater awareness of 
uh, you know, psychological issues, diabetes, uh, depression and anxiety uh, in general practice, let's say. Uh, so I think, I think the awareness has grown and people are noticing these issues. They're getting talked about more, uh, which is great. Um, at the same time, of course, um, yes, uh, diabetes educators as well as GPs, endocrinologists, other diabetes health professionals do report feeling poorly equipped. So if uh, the listener is feeling that way, uh, just be reassured you're not alone. And I hear this from health professionals uh, a lot. You know, we're flat out on the day-to-day issues and we're not neglecting the psychological side of things, but I think finding the time uh, to fit that in when we're squeezed to be just keeping up with uh, the other issues that people are dealing with uh, is quite hard. Some some of the barriers that diabetes health professionals have said to me they have uh, in opening up these conversations, things like, well, the lack of time, which you know, I've already mentioned. Um, if I talk about diabetes as stress, for example, uh, how am I going to fit in the time to talk about insulin adjustment, for example? Uh, sometimes people say they're afraid of saying the wrong thing. And what if I open up that conversation, a person gets upset? Uh, what do I do? How do I, how do I tie that up so that I can then get onto the next patient? Sometimes we feel overwhelmed by the needs, which is understandable. I do too sometimes as well, and I'm a diabetes psychologist. Uh, I think the, sadly, the stigma of any sort of psychological issue is still around, sadly. And one other thing, we as health professionals often go into the area uh, of being a health professional because we want to fix things. We want to help people and that then might fall into uh, sort of an unhelpful area where we want to fix things that aren't necessarily fixable. I'm not advocating that uh, the diabetes educators or any other diabetes health professional become diabetes psychologists, but I feel I know there's a lot that you can do even with a short amount of time uh, and uh, we'll come back to those specifics uh, a little later. Thanks, Linda, for that. Um, I wondering if you could tell our members more about what sort of work you do with people living with diabetes and who are your major referrers for that? Sure. Well, my main role is as a clinical or as a diabetes psychologist working clinically in private practice. Uh, and I see um, individuals, uh, I see family members, sometimes family members on their own. Uh, and that clinical work combines really well with my other hat, uh, which is uh, as a research, as a diabetes researcher. Uh, and uh, our most recent research on diabetes language presented at the uh, conference last week uh, identified the words that really do hurt. Uh, what we found was that complications language generates the greatest distress among people living uh, with type 1 and type 2. I just wanted to acknowledge the um, the people with type 1 and type 2 who I work with who contribute uh, really important ideas about research uh, to that program. Uh, of course, the other side, the thinking about my private practice, uh, referrals, they come mostly for endocrinologists, interestingly, uh, some from diabetes educators and uh, GPs. Uh, a number of people self-refer um, through internet searches. Uh, they might come across my uh, Facebook page, Diabetes Psychology Services. They might have friends who've seen me uh, or other diabetes connections. Uh, and I see people uh, in person, but I do a lot more uh, telehealth 
uh, and phone consults as everybody's life gets much busier. In my practice, I probably see about 60% of the people I see have type 1. I think about a quarter have type 2. About 10%, I'd say, would be uh, parents of young people. And I also see an increasing number of health professionals uh, struggling with burnout and stress, which is quite concerning. And as well, I, I see some other folks who have other chronic medical conditions such as uh, cancer, lung disease and so on. Busy lady. <laughs> That's right, yeah. hard <laughs> <laughs> thinking about it. Uh, um, but, but that is concerning about health professionals. I think it's probably been there for a long time and not necessarily being uh, acknowledged more generally. So I think that's great that it's yeah. being picked up, but sad that it is happening. Yeah. Okay, my next question was around the issue. Are, are there common themes or issues you find yourself helping your clients to work through? And if so, can you detail how these manifest or present if you could? Sure. Well, the, the broad the broad term of diabetes distress uh, covers a lot of what I help people with on a daily basis. You know, I do see people obviously with uh, depression and anxiety and, and other um, sort of more general psychological issues, but the big the big area is this issue, is this topic of diabetes distress. Uh, and uh, there's a number of there are a number of things that are really loom large under that umbrella term. Uh, the first thing I'd say is other people. <laughs> other people in various ways who uh, create difficulties for the person living with diabetes. So that those other people might be uh, someone's health professionals, might be family members, um, people in workplaces, intimate relationships, the diabetes police. I don't know whether you've heard of that. You've probably heard of that term. Uh, and social issues generally in dealing with a medical condition that affects every aspect of your life. Uh, for younger people, this often means uh, negotiating teamwork with parents, especially in that uh, somewhat tricky transition to young adulthood, uh, and also working with the parents who are trying to negotiate that from their perspective, uh, where they struggle with wanting to uh, protect but yet allow a young person to become independent uh, with something that they often feel that the young person hasn't really got a handle on yet. Uh, another common issue is, I guess, guilt. Feeling guilty for a variety of reasons, but often primarily over not managing my diabetes well enough. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a failure. Those kinds of things are very uh, destructive uh, and, uh, and need help with. Uh, and one other thing that is a big issue and it's, and it's becoming, it feels like to me in the conversations I have, it's becoming more um, present and that's helping people work through their understanding of longer term complications. Uh, I, I don't think in diabetes generally we're great at talking about prognosis with our patients. So I had a conversation with uh, a lovely endocrinologist and um, the team dietitian just last week. And these are skilled, compassionate people, very capable. And they were probably the last people I would have thought who would struggle with that, but, but they identified that as a problem for them. Some other things, you know, um, feeling personally responsible for diabetes, uh, particularly people with type 2. You know, the media 
generates um, a lot of blame and uh, feelings of shame for people with type 2 especially, uh, having to explain uh, diabetes to others, explain what this device is. I had one young person last week say they were, uh, you know, they had a CGM, had a sensor on and they were asked if they were a robot, which was funny and distressing at the same time. Uh, so they're definitely common themes, uh, which is helpful because then you can anticipate what might be going on for a particular person. The other, there's one other issue that I'd throw in there as well, which is the that broader sort of more, if you like, existential question of why me? What have I done to deserve this? Um, when I see kids with type 1, uh, they so often feel like it's diabetes is a punishment uh, and unless kind of bring that issue out into the open, that might sit there and fester for some time and and uh, provide a destructive element to how they uh, then uh, deal with their diabetes later on when they become more independent. Now, how, does, how do you... How do you see these issues? How do they present? Well, it, it's it's unless you use routine screening tools, and, and I'd certainly advocate uh, using something like uh, the two items from the PAID or the Problem Areas in Diabetes Scale. That, that's a validated measure for picking up diabetes distress. Uh, obviously, the um, entire questionnaire, the PAID questionnaire, or the Type 1 Diabetes Distress, distress scale, uh, using those routinely as screening tools, you're certainly more likely to pick up on diabetes distress. But of course, that, that doesn't always happen. It's hard to add this to your uh, agenda in the consultation, um, but, it, but it does reap uh, rewards. Picking out people, finding people who are distressed, it, sometimes it might be at higher A1C, but not necessarily. Um, might be missing appointments. Um, people might feel uh, they're going to be judged. Even, even if you're the, the most compassionate person, showing up to your health professional when you haven't been doing all the so-called right things, uh, worrying that your A1C is going to not be where you would all like it is, uh, you know, is a, is a, can provide a lot of um, anticipatory distress. And so some people will just avoid that by not coming. Roger Mazzi did a lovely study on this many years ago and uncovered those uh, those worries that people have. You know, seeing coming to the health professionals like going to see the school principal. I'm going to be scolded in some way, uh, and uh, and the health professional is going to be disappointed with them. Um, even even if that's not your intention, that can often be uh, something that's going on under the surface. So that's one uh, potential. Um, a trigger or um, a manifestation. Sometimes when people are reluctant, you know, you're discussing intensifying therapy and people are reluctant. Or, for example, somebody with type 2 having a discussion about shifting on to insulin or other injectables, that can, that can be a sort of a transition point that generates a lot of distress. The first signs of complications. Uh, and if you see what looks like depression or anxiety, it may well be... Uh, diabetes distress that's underlying those symptoms. I mean, it could be obvious. You know, if a person comes in and tells you they're upset about diabetes, that's so helpful. Uh, if they're teary, often people want to look like they've got it all together. And it sounds a little bit odd that you go to see a health professional and you want people to think that you've got it all together. Uh, there's a lot of there can be a lot of pressure in those relationships to to feel like you've um, you're all under control. Uh, so, I, so picking up 
picking up the subtle cues. You know, it's easy for me because once someone gets to me, uh, then I, I'm pretty certain that they're there because there are these issues going on. Uh, but if you're seeing a lot of patients every day and you're trying to figure out who needs some extra help, it's not always easy. And that's why I guess I would strongly advocate the use of some kind of screening tool. Opens up the conversation uh, and helps you uh, yeah, help, helps you uh, identify people who will then be benefited from further input. Mm. Thanks, Linda. This is obviously a subject we could go on about forever, and but it, it, is <laughs> it was a lovely summary. Thank you. Um, sure. The next question, can you provide us with, I guess, one or two case examples which might highlight the importance of having a good interdisciplinary team? And you've referred to some of those people. Um, and, and what this can mean for the person in their support network? Sure, I was I was trying to think of a few people who would nicely illustrate that, and I hope I've I hope these people do that. Um, I thought of Emily. Now, Emily is uh, when I saw her first, uh, she was nineteen years of age. Uh, she'd grown up in a rural regional area. She'd had uh, she'd been diagnosed with type one around eleven or twelve years, and out in where she grew up, uh, there weren't any specialists, so she. Uh, ended up seeing a general paediatrician. Short story, she had a very bad experience. She was about 15 or 16 uh, and the comment to her was along the lines of, uh, if you don't pull up your socks, young lady, you'll be blind by the time you're 30. I wish that was an unusual thing for people to hear, but sadly, it's not so unusual. So Emily had that experience and from then on, uh, she got her mum filled in her insulin scripts uh, and she basically withdrew from any direct contact with um, medical or other health professionals. And then a couple of years passed. She came to Sydney for uni. Uh, she got in touch with me. I just forget how. Um, so we worked through a couple of important things. First of all, her fear of complications in general and her fear of blindness in particular. So we, we talked through some of the stats. We talked about the relationship between blood sugars, A1C, complications, risk, and so on. So we, we dampened down and addressed that uh, terrible uh, catastrophic fear that she brought with her. And then we worked on developing her assertiveness skills to be able to establish a new diabetes health professional team. We, we worked pretty hard on her being able to work out what she wanted. And then at the same time, I spoke to someone uh, who I knew I could rely on to be uh, non-judgmental, to be prepared to answer any of her questions, uh, to let her take control of the conversation, but not tell her to do anything. Uh, and uh, this person was terrific and, and was you know, right on the ball with, with the plan. And so she was pretty scared, but she met with them and uh, that health professional did all those things, just let her talk, let her raise issues. Uh, and they hit it off. It was terrific. Uh, so, so then having established her in a good relationship with an endo, she was then able to be confident to take that approach uh, to build her team. And it really renewed her energy to manage her type 1 and kind of start afresh. So a uh, really good outcome for, um, for Emily. Uh, I've got one other example. Somebody with type 2, let's call her Joan. Uh, this, this is a lovely lady. She'd had type 2 for some time. Um, her A1C was uh, climbing. 
Um, and, you know, very appropriately, Herendo suggested uh, transitioning onto insulin. And every time he did that, he was met with a flood of tears. Uh, so sent, suggested she come and talk to me. We didn't talk about insulin for ages because she had the same reaction when I brought it up. Uh, so I said, we'll park that. Uh, she clearly had some anxiety issues, which she was happy to to work on. So that was uh, that was helpful. So we managed that. Interestingly, during that time of uh, getting her anxiety under under better control, her A1C dropped significantly, which really illustrated to all of us in that team how stress, how psychological factors really negatively can impact blood glucose levels. Uh, so we, so that was that was really helpful. So then we looked at um, addressing the psychological insulin resistance and a fear of needles. So we worked on that. And then Joan, although she, you know, she her, the need to transition to insulin um, had uh, was now delayed. She was much better equipped to manage that uh, and able to make a smooth transition to insulin a bit later on when um, type 2 progressed uh, as it does. So, yeah, that, that helped both of those people and also uh, the teams to really um, integrate uh, the psychological issues with the medical care. And I think that's that's really the best way to do it. Having, I mean, I, of course, this is the ideal. Having a uh, you know, a, a diabetes psychologist somehow integrated, whether in a team or uh, connected in other ways, uh, and being able to feed backwards and forwards information that helps um, the other members of the team to manage what they're doing uh, makes makes the whole experience for the person with type one or two uh, and the health professionals uh, so much better. Thanks, Linda. They were two lovely examples. I wonder if you could um, tell us how can can we as as health professionals help our clients? In other words, what what's mm -hmm. available for educators to upskill and assist their clients to manage their emotional health and diabetes in in the ways that you've talked about? Sure. Yes. I, and I think I think Jan, many diabetes health professionals underestimate how much they can already do within their existing relationships with patients. And as I mentioned, the conversation I had last week with an endo and the dietitian, who were terrific. When I was talking with them, it occurred to me that there's a sort of a lingering stigma as well as an almost a mystery about what a psychologist does. Frankly, it's a mystery to me what some psychologists do too, uh, but, but it's not so complex that diabetes health professionals can't address these issues uh, just as well. I guess, I, you know, if you're, if, you're, if you're a dietitian, you're going to specialise in one section of diabetes care and uh, I specialise in another, but there's going to be some overlap and helping all of us, I guess, have increased that overlap is really useful. The first thing I'd say uh, is about your approach, about a person's approach. You know, it's you know, I, with another hat on, I teach veterinary students about uh, communicating in difficult situations, breaking bad news, euthanasia, and so on. And as I say to them, it's more about your overall approach and attitude, not necessarily specifics of what to say and what not to say. I will come back to language in a moment, but having that compassionate, uh, non-judgmental an accepting approach as a first pass. I think that's really important. So doing a kind of a self-check, is that how I'm approaching people? And of course, that requires a lot of emotional energy. So I'd throw in there, are you looking after yourself well? Because 
I know that. My job is very emotionally demanding and I know firsthand just how important it is uh, to look after my emotional health uh, and uh, in various ways to make sure that I can then give out uh, to the patients that I'm seeing. Another thing that you can easily do is, uh, what I say, is avoid the mental health framework, which sounds odd coming from a psychologist, but again, um, we're talking about diabetes distress. Diabetes distress isn't mental illness. Uh, it's, it's a normal reaction for, uh, was it Kaplan, I've got a quote from Kaplan, which is decades old but still applicable. Our emotional reactions to diabetes are essentially healthy reaction of an ordinary person struggling to master a novel and burdensome situation. So as I say to my patients, you know, if we took your diabetes away, do you think you'd still feel like this? And the vast majority, oh no, it'd be so much better. I wouldn't have these issues if I didn't have diabetes. So meant, avoiding that mental health framework is something that you can fairly easily do. Then another related skill is to normalise emotional reactions. You know, the, the DAWN studies that I mentioned earlier on, uh, I find uh, just showing people those percentages, you know, saying that across the world, you know, between 40 to 45% of people with diabetes will experience quite significant, you know, moderate to severe diabetes distress at any one time is really surprising for them. It helps normalise. No, I'm not going mad. It's not me. It's, it's just about the diabetes piece. So I think they're attitude issues that you can uh, easily, relatively easily deal with straight away. Now, of course, having just said there are no right or wrong things to say, do think about the words you use. You know, we know from our recent study that I mentioned that certain, certain words are problematic and we've demonstrated do generate significant distress and they are complications related words and judgment words like poorly controlled. It's interesting, in contrast, other words people don't care about or actually liked were things like words like uh, well controlled, non-diabetic, take it or leave it. Uh, but those, the words that are problematic and generate significant distress are the words related to complications. Uh, and we really do need better communication around complications. Um, that's something that our research program is working uh, hard to develop at the moment. Another thing about our language is, you know, we can, we, if we've worked in the diabetes area for some time, we kind of become immune to how some of some words land on people uh, because they're so familiar to us. So just sort of doing a bit of a check, you know, maybe during the course of one particular day, you just notice what you're saying. Would, would the next person out there in the street know what I'm talking about? In terms of resources, I've, I've written several short articles for, um, I think, Endo Today and Diabetes Management Journal on identifying and managing diabetes distress, and they're brief and accessible, and I, uh, I think there are links to these, the PDF versions of these for listeners if they wanted to uh, have a read of those. I hate to beat my own drum here, but I also <laughs> co-authored the Australian Handbook uh, on uh, Emotional Health in Diabetes, which gives some good info uh, on some of these specific issues people with diabetes struggle with and how to help. And the reference is available for that. Um, that's available on the net. And I believe that there there are moves to develop 
an online training program uh, that's going to be, you know, take you a number of hours uh, online to work through and uh, some of the listeners might uh, want to invest the time in that. So that's something to chase up. Uh, and the other thing that I do is I provide a consulting service to diabetes teams on how to recognise and intervene with some of these common diabetes distress issues. Uh, and, uh, and we're currently developing this within a collaborative research framework. So um, stay tuned uh, for that. Mm. Great, Linda. That's enormously helpful. I'm sure that the members will find that. But I just wanted to finally, uh, I guess, thinking about our learning objectives for today's session, if you had any take-home messages to tie in with those objectives, and if so, what would they be? Hmm. Look, psychological issues so often lie behind the difficulties that people with diabetes face in putting into practice the strategies for self-management that that we as health professionals offer. Uh, and and if we neglect to address these, even though they do take time and they seem hard to do, uh, but if we don't address those, sometimes the efforts we make to adjust insulin, to encourage more intensive therapy, to change technology, etc., might just be a waste of time. And research backs, us, backs that up. We know that Treating diabetes distress and or depression first allows a person to free up emotional energy and drive to then pay more attention to all that other stuff. And in the current, certainly in the current model for funding public diabetes services, uh, that, that model is stretched and unlikely to allow for more psychological input anytime soon. But we can't leave these issues to psychologists to sort out. So... Finding ways, whether small or larger, to incorporate managing and helping that person in front of you with whatever diabetes distress issue they have, it's going to make a huge difference uh, to that person. So I would say, I would say, take a risk and raise the subject. Ask a person something like, "How is your diabetes ticking you off at the moment?" That's a question I often use. That's you know, if somebody is, is perhaps a little bit reluctant to to sort of go there in the conversation, that's, that's a question that's easily answered because there's always something. <laughs> so I would say to people, um, open up the conversation, see where it takes you, uh, mindful of that approach that I mentioned of being non-judgmental, of normalising uh, and, uh, and respecting p people's choices uh, and that can only help all of us. Great. Thank you so much, Linda. I really appreciate your time today and I'm sure that this podcast is going to inspire our members to start thinking about working towards expanding their skills in this area because clearly it, it's still a, an area that needs work and, and places stress yeah. on those of us in the workplace. So thank you for that. Mm. And thank You're you very to, welcome. And thank you Sorry. to all of those of you out there taking the time to listen to this podcast. And please take the time to download some of the valuable references Linda's mentioned today. Um, and they'll be provided on the LMS site. And you can upload, also upload any questions you might like our speaker to address along the way. So thank you once again, Linda. And we'll see all the rest of you again soon. Thanks, Jan. It's been a pleasure. 